Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that it is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word of any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. I am thankful to be with you uh, once again to open the scriptures up and, and study them with you. Um, as you know, we're kind of going in the spring and the summer, we're going through the life of David as told in the book of 2 Samuel. And so uh, last week we finished looking at the chapter six of 2 Samuel, where David brings the ark into Jerusalem. And this week we're, we're transitioning to chapter seven, and the ark is, of the Lord is in Jerusalem, 
And, you know, David is royally and religiously settled. He's on the throne, he's in a palace, he's near God's ark and dwelling place with all of his enemies defeated and scattered. But wait, something's not quite right in this picture of rest. What about God? Does, da- does God feel pleased with David as pleased with David as David feels pleased with himself and with God? So our passage this morning continues to ask us, what do we do when life slowly begins to feel more and more like normal again? Do we know how to rest? Let alone do we know what true rest is? And so our passage this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 7 suggests in times like these and questions like these that we turn to the Lord. And as we turn to the Lord, it also suggests that the Lord surprise, gives us surprising answers to our questions. But before we step into the surprise of God's rest, I'd love us to take a moment to pray. Um, could you pray with me for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Let's pray together. Father, um, Just pray that you would help us to be still for a moment, to take in all of that we just, that Emily just read to us, um, these words of God. And Lord, would you give us an appetite for them? Would you move at a heart level for us to absorb these words, to apply these words to our lives? And Lord, you know, where our hearts are, what we're thinking about right now in the back of our minds and hearts. You know what the day's been like. You know what the week's been like. You know what the year and change has been like. And Lord, I just pray that you would show up, that you'd make much of yourself in our eyes because sadly you need to. And Father, I pray that you would be high and you would be lifted up that you'd be more believable and beautiful in the eyes of our hearts, even as we meditate on your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when I was in high school, uh, my dad and I used to go fishing together. And we lived in a city, so we were no real outdoorsmen, let's be honest. (laughs) But in good weather, there was a good chance that he and I would have a pole in our hand somewhere near a lake or in a river. And I'm really not sure how we kind of developed this, this habit of fishing together as a hobby, but I do remember my dad waking me up on Saturday mornings when I was in high school and gathering up our equipment and driving an hour or two to some remote place in rural Ohio to spend half the day fishing. And I also remember thinking at the time, I was doing him a favor. You know, like the old man, wanted to feel good about being a dad, he had some nostalgia about fishing, or even maybe loneliness that required his son to stand next to him in a river, I had no idea, just guessing. And even though I sort of groaned about getting up early on a Saturday morning, I would try to kind of push aside my adolescent angst and, you know, spend a few hours with good old dad and and fishing. So I bet you can relate no matter what your family tradition is or was, right? But when I reflect back on that family tradition, on my memories fishing, I now realize that I had it all wrong. I now realize that he was actually doing me a favor. 
Maybe because it's now that I'm a dad and I start to get it. What it feels like to set an alarm again on a Saturday morning. <laughs> what all I really do just want is quiet and a cup of coffee <laughs> and maybe something to watch or read or listen to, right? But actually, I think as I think more about what um, was going on in those high school years, I think of my dad's kindness, and it comes more and more from a growing honesty about what life was like for me in high school. If I'm honest, I have to admit I was a bit lonely and something of a homebody. I was so busy achieving, so busy with things like school newspaper and soccer and homework that my friends in school were more like these kind of small talk coworkers and less like kind of hang out, get to know deep personal secrets about you kind of friends. And so I think maybe my dad saw this and he suggested fishing as a way to get me out of the house and get me out of my head and get me into the woods with people who loved me, like him. You see, there I was congratulating myself on getting up and getting dressed, thinking I was being a good sport and a great son in those chilly mornings fishing. And there my dad was researching the trout-stocked rivers, a hard find in Ohio, <laughs> buying flying fishing rods and thigh-high waders, even tying microscopic flies that we constantly lost in tree branches together. <laughs> and I see now that I was not primarily doing something for my father, but my father was primarily doing something for me. And you could say that that was David's takeaway in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Through God's mouthpiece, the prophet Nathan, David realizes that his kingship and his life are not primarily about doing something for God. Instead, God was primarily doing something for David in his life and through his kingship. And so wherever you are this morning with God as a heavenly father, this should resonate at some level. What if going to church and volunteering at church, what if putting in extra time in your job or extra time with your friends or your family, what if these good things are not just our favors to God or to other people? And so what if these good things for God and for others, what if these good actions were actually the very place where God is favoring us? Let me put it another way. I think I'm a lot like King David, and I sometimes get so caught up in the things I'm doing for God, or what I really want to do for God if I had the time, that I forget what Christianity is primarily about. Christianity primarily is about God doing things for me. It's what God is doing in God's plans, not what I do in my plans, however well-intentioned they are. Jesus is the object of faith, right? Jesus is the person we address our prayers to because it's his work and not ours that counts the most. Or in the language of our passage this morning, Jesus is first and foremost building us a house, not the other way around. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 21 remind David and they remind us of this humbling and joyful truth God is always working his steadfast love for his children. And this fact of the universe invites us to sometimes be still. 
and just sit before the Lord. Our passage describes God's work and our stillness in a story, and there are kind of three elements in order to the story that move us from our business into God's rest. So we see this in three steps. First, verses one through seven, we see a description of our well-meaning busyness. Second, verses eight through 17, we see the promise of God's humble and unstoppable work. And then third, verses 18 through 21, we see the invitation to us to enter into God's rest, his presence. That sermon outline is probably projected behind me. It's also in your electronic bulletin. But let's begin with verses one through seven in 2 Samuel's description, right, of what the nature of our business is. As I mentioned earlier, like verse one tells us that life is going great and only getting better for David, right? He lives comfortably in a giant palace made of stone and cedar. He lives peaceably in a time when all the warfare around him has ceased at least temporarily. It's therefore to David's credit that he decides yet again to turn to the Lord. David chooses to treat God not as just a spare tire that he used in his wilderness times of trouble. David wants to honor God in peacetime when things are going well for him. After all, David has the life, right? He's got a full family. He's got a forever home. He's got a cushy but important job. And David is living the ancient Middle Eastern dream, the fabled happily ever after. But still, they, there he is. Still here we are. But before we congratulate David and perhaps congratulate ourselves, you know, like for caring about God when we don't feel sort of the normal stressors of family and finances and health in our lives, it's worth looking at how God, uh, David's mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart in verse two. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Perhaps you're thinking, Sid, I mean, David just wants to do something nice for God. What's wrong with that? What's the big deal? Why can't he build God a house? But a peek ahead at God's response in verses five through seven, these verses tell us that we can completely miss God, especially when life seems to be working so well for us. It's in those best moments that David and we misunderstand God. And we succumb to what the poet T.S. Eliot calls the last temptation. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. Yes, it's a good thing to want to do something big for God, to build him a home like ours, sure. But we can build God a home or a house for all the wrong reasons. We can assume so very much about God's abilities and his choices. But I'm gonna let verses six and seven make that case for us. There, David tell, there God tells David through Nathan that he chose to live in a tent. That's God's choice because God's people were living in tents. God wanted to be, live an unsettled life without rest of a permanent home because Israel, his people, were living an unsettled life without a permanent home. 
He is God with us. He's Emmanuel, a God who chooses even today by his Holy Spirit to dwell with us here on earth as he dwells in heaven. And so commentator Dale Davis asks us a good question. Can you not see the astounding condescension of our God here? He is the God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. The God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The God who is not ashamed to say that he has been traveling around in a tent with his people. Do you see how close he is to you? You see, the God of the universe makes surprisingly humble and intimate choices. Even as he's so much more able than David and we give him credit for. Verses six through seven make clear David also assumed something about God's abilities. David guessed that God was not able to build himself a house and needed David's help. As if David's house wasn't already built by God for David. And this pride is where the kind of cultural context of David's world really does help us understand. In the ancient Middle East, kings tried to control the deity instead of being controlled by the deity. And one power move in the ancient world was for the king to build a temple for his God right after he settled his claim to the throne. Building your God a temple was a religious guarantee in writing of future blessings for the king. And so this is why the Lord God, the true God, vetoes David's let me build you a house idea. This is why God in his kindness often does this. He offers to build David a more enduring house of royal descendants first. God doesn't want us to pity him because he condescends to dwell with us. That's not a reason for pity. He won't let us forget that he is in charge and he is working for our good. Even when we're at our most powerful, we're not working to make it good for God. God isn't a dog that we pet to get a purr or a lick. God isn't a lamp that we rub the right way in order to get three free wishes. And this is so hard to remember in our cultural moment, isn't it? When people do well in Lake Norman, they do really, really well. A good salary, a good looking family, the right clothes, the right home, the best dining, the best after school activities. These gifts from God, which they are gifts, but they can so quickly turn our hearts around. It can get so easy to think that God needs us and our hard work and our talents. We can get embarrassed for God and his church when they don't always look good or right or the best. And there's a piece of us that thinks, I'll take care of this for you, God. And subtly over time, either we quit or we become rescuers and fixers of the lives around us, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our communities. And we grow in our belief that God needs us, not that we need God primarily. And this shift in our heart about who's really in charge here is so subtle. And we can notice it and just think of these questions as sort of a, uh, a diagnostic. Think about how you feel about your days. School or work, has it become more and more of a burden? 
Has parenting and friendship become more about me than the parent or the friend? Am I asking questions like, how am I doing at this? Am I a good friend? Am I a good parent? Or am I asking questions like, how is that person doing? That friend or child doing? Do I enjoy being with that child or friend? Our lives in general begin to feel like this constant attempt, right? Sometimes to avoid making mistakes and just kind of trying to keep the praise and the good things flowing. And we can see this kind of need to control in our relationship with God. We build God a kind of, some kind of house, hoping that others are gonna notice us or that God will notice and give us what we really want. But according to God himself in verses eight through 17, this is not how life is supposed to work because this is not how God works. Life isn't supposed to work that way because that's not how God works. Verses eight through 17 promise God is working out his humble love always and forever. And that's the point two of our outline. And I want you to see this. God does not respond to David's pride and our self-sufficiency with harsh words. He doesn't do that. Instead, he promises something. He promises incredibly detailed kindness. The kind of kindness that leads us to embrace his plans instead of our own. In verses eight through 17, God is the subject of 23 actions, a total of 10 blessings. And all of these actions and all of these blessings are not ours or David's. They are also completely undeserved. David will not build a house or a temple for God. God will build David a forever royal line, a house. And this royal family will end in a climactic person, right? The true David, the future offspring of David, Jesus Christ, Jesus who has once and for all pleased God for us by his perfect death, perfect life, sacrificial death, and powerful resurrection. And the more we trust in these historical facts, the less what people think of us matters. The less of the ups and downs of our days affect us so very heavily. And so in other words, God responds to our human misunderstanding and our misguided busyness with God. God responds with grace, <laughs> grace. The theologian Robert Capon hopefully and eloquently defines grace for us, and it's a lengthy definition, but it's just worth absorbing here. The life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set for ourselves. It's a continually renewed attempt simply just to believe that someone else, Jesus, has done all the achieving that's needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve or not. If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right. It isn't. As a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. You can fail utterly, therefore, and still live a life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, fold up morally, fold up intellectually, and still be safe. Because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that just makes you his cup of tea. That's so counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> 
It's so against the grain of our achieving is believing cultural moment that we live in. But it's true. And God restores joy to our work by it. He restores liking to our relationships and friends and family by it. He restores freedom to life in general by reminding us that life is not about us. It is about Jesus. We can succeed. We can fail. Either way, Jesus will always achieve for us. Humming in the background of your outlook inbox. Humming in the background of yet another spin cycle on the washing machine. Right? Beneath your feet, pulsing beneath your feet at the conference table, at the changing table, at the, your favorite farm to table, is the finished work of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Therefore, to borrow another image from Robert Capon, by faith we can play life's many performances and we can play them in order to hear the music and not just to listen for and count all the wrong notes. Because at the end of the day, God's grace makes all of our infirmities occasions for glory. And really this is the idea that's operating throughout verses eight through 17. These verses catalog the many, many ways that God gives us good and needed things through his son and David's offspring, Jesus. If by faith we are God's sons and daughters in the true David, verse 14, God gives us a name, some righteous reputation that is unearned and undeserved. If by faith we are God's sons and daughters, in the true David, God the Father gives us a place, a peaceful habitation, a fiercely protected forever home for all of us who sometimes feel homeless in this safe and unsafe and insecure world. And so as we believe in the eternal King Jesus, the son of David, God gives us rest. And that rest looks like spiritual comfort here on earth through a God who lowers himself to dwell in our hearts. And that rest looks like physical property promised for us there in the new heavens and the new earth. And verses 14 and 15 just clarify the nature of these grace-based promises. Verse 15 just emphasizes and shows that God will show David and us his steadfast love. That word in the Hebrew, steadfast love, is the word chesed. Chesed in the original Hebrew. And chesed refers to a relationship of unconditional love. In Jesus, we are God's children, and we, didn't, we do not earn that right. We did not even choose God, the Father's love. Just like we can't earn and didn't choose our own parents' love. And so to quote author Tyler Lloyd-Jones, Chesed can also be translated as God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Chesed means to say God will not and he even cannot disown or forsake his children. Yet for all the security of God's fatherly and nurturing love, verse 14 does warn us that God not only shouts from heavens, you are loved into all of our insecure hearts over and over and over again. He not only does that, he also sometimes says, no, you can't have your way to us in our foolishness. So while God's love for his people is unconditional, not based on anyone's performance, but, but Jesus Christ alone, God's love does have a conditional enjoyment. That is, we can sometimes deaden ourselves, deaden our souls to God's grace. 
whether through self-preoccupied busyness or ignoring God's promise for us in our self-imposed self-despair. And this is why verses 18 through 21 are so essential. These verses show us how God's love erodes even the attempts at self-sufficiency, right? And so we're into our third and final point this morning, our rest in God's presence. Before we move to what David does in these four verses, I just want to notice what David does not do. What does he not do? David does not build God a house, period. In fact, he stops this whole like God-pleasing campaign and just sits before the Lord in verse 18. David just says he decides he does not want to miss God and his man-made plans for God. There's a kind of call to strategic stillness here for us, isn't there? God's love speaks into our anxious Lake Norman fears that we aren't doing enough. God's love speaks into those times when we feel like we're not busy being enough for God, for others, for ourselves. Look, I don't follow everyone's life around. I'm not snooping. I just know from my own life. And I know from what it feels like to live in Lake Norman that there is a need for us to say no. I can't tell you the whens and the wheres in the house, but we need to think about saying no more. <laughs> no to our bosses even. No to our children. And no to even our spouses. And out of love, therefore, God helps us to say no in the midst of these pressures. He says, be still and know that I'm God. To faithfully do nothing, to faithfully disappoint other people's expectations, to merely acknowledge our daily dependent on God's grace, that our, to remember moment by moment our need for his chesed love. But cultivating this stillness is so difficult, isn't it? So difficult. I love the way that Blaise Pascal puts it. I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. <laughs> Nothing is so insufferable to man as to be completely at rest without passions, without bus busyness, without diversion, without study. And we know this from personal experience, right? Why is it a punishment to send your kid to the room, right? <laughs> or think about it this way. If I asked you to go home and spend one hour doing absolutely nothing, just being still, almost everyone in this room would not last more than 15 minutes. That's just statistically proven by the University of Virginia study. You won't last. I won't last. Not merely because of the demands outside of us, but because of the demands that we've internalized inside of us. And this is why verses 18 through 21 are so helpful. They provide a sort of tutorial on what the Bible means by being still and knowing God's God. If it, often it means entering God's presence through the non-busyness, the non-action, so to speak, of prayer, right? What is prayer? Prayer doesn't produce anything in the sense of action. It takes the universe out of our hands and puts it in God's, right? Prayer submits our agenda to God's agenda. And this is what makes it so hard for so many of us to actually pray, because prayer is a kind of answering. It's a kind of responding to what's been done for us, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. And really prayer is just pleading these promises back to God, soaking in these prayers, in, the, in these promises. And that's really what 2 Samuel 7 is doing. David is referring to God and God's actions 17 times in his prayer. 17 times. 
And then he prayer, just prays about it, he soaks it in. And he pleads God's promises back to him. So here's a really simple takeaway to all that. Try doing nothing before you go ahead and do something. Just try it. You've probably heard the saying, don't just stand there, do something. I think 2 Samuel 7 is saying the opposite. Don't just do something. Stand there first. Try it. I dare you. Okay? There's, that is just find time to sit with God and ask him why you are doing what you do. And, I, and I'm just going to borrow some imagery here from the cricket in Times Square just to kind of make this sort of appealing. And you'll find, if you do these things, that you sit there, sometimes, like ripples around a stone dropped into still water, the circles of silence spread. You'll find that everything stops, and no one seems to mind. And even Samfer Road, 73, can feel still as a meadow at evening, while the sun's streaming in on the people there, and the wind moving among them, as if they were only tall blades of grass. Martin Luther was the man who started Protestant Christianity and the Reformation in Europe. And he had his friend and a student named Philip Melanchthon. And one day Melanchthon asked Luther, because they're in this relationship of discipleship, he says, Luther, can you discuss God's, God's governance of the world with me? And Luther looks at Melanchthon, pauses, looks out the window, sees the sunshine streaming in. And Luther said, Philip, let's go fishing instead. We can leave the governance of the world to God for another day. You know, Luther's point is bigger than that, that bumper sticker, I'd rather be fishing. It includes it, but it's bigger. Martin Luther is saying, when we understand God is in charge and he's always at work, we will be more and more free to not always have to be in charge, to not always have to be at work on some project. We get to see all this life in a different way. We can see all this life as God doing me a favor, not me doing God a favor. And it's there and then, in that mindset, in that heart posture, that we'll be able to finally and fully rest in God's free and forever love. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. Um, the challenge and the comfort of them just getting to soak in your promises, the, way you, the invitations in this passage, the way you get it, the way you came down in the midst of getting it and transformed it. And I pray that we trust that and you change us by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.